when I was a kid, there were certain school days that I always looked forward to. Field day, the last day of school, nothing but games and snacks. Uh, book fair day, field trip days, oh, they were such a blast. There was, all, there was another day, a school day, that every kid loved, but you never saw it coming. It always came as a big surprise. It was substitute teacher day. And see, when substitutes were called in, a lot of times they were called in last minute, so they didn't really know what we'd been studying. Oftentimes they didn't really have a, a handle on how to teach what we'd been studying because they were just called in to, you know, to, to keep the chaos in check a lot of times. I remember one time in high school we had an elderly man come in to, to sub for our physics class, and he just told us straight up, I don't really know physics. And so he spent an hour telling us stories from World War II. It was awesome. I learned a lot. I still remember that guy and his stories. Uh, the downside of this, of course, we all know this, that when a sub comes in, there are always some students who see that as a license to goof off or even cheat because they don't see that substitute in the same, uh, with the same respect and authority as the regular teacher. When the cat's away, the mice will play, right? That's that built-in assumption. I think all of us have it at least a little bit this built-in assumption that in the absence of authority, we're free to do whatever we want. And y'all, this is an issue that actually touches the, a nerve for anybody who knows and walks with Jesus. It's an issue that the Apostle Paul ran up against his entire life in ministry. This idea that being a Christian somehow opens us up to a license to sin and to abuse the freedom that we've been given. And really, we've kind of seen this, been, it's been building up all throughout Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul, see, Paul has shown us in this letter, from every different angle, how the law of God given in the Bible, the law of God which is good and perfect, but it cannot set us right with God. The law was never meant to do it. Over and against all of our religious assumptions, we don't, we don't belong to God, we're not saved by keeping the law. That's what we would assume to be true, but it's not true. Keeping the law does not save us. Sinful human beings can only be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And Paul uses very rich language to describe this transformation. He says, once we were slaves under the curse of the law. We were in bondage to the law, being unable to keep it. But now we are God's beloved sons. Because through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been changed. We've been made new. Because Jesus bore our judgment for us and redeemed us through the cross, now we are truly sons of God, redeemed. That redemption comes as a free gift. It's not something we can achieve through our works. It's only received by faith. That's kind of the nutshell account of what Galatians teaches us. And we saw last week, if you were with us earlier in Galatians 5, Paul says, Christ has set us free. It was for freedom that Christ set you free, he says in verse 1. Free from the condemnation that our sins deserve, and also free from the law as our means of salvation. We don't depend on our obedience to save us. We're free from that. And y'all, that's good news. We preach it every week. We celebrate it always. But you can probably guess what Paul's opponents said in response to this message. 
See, there's always been, even now, there's always been a clear and forceful pushback to this message of grace. Here it is. If God saves us without regard for our good works, then what's the point of being good? What difference does it make how we live? If God accepts us by faith apart from the works of the law, do we have any incentive now to be good? Our goodness didn't get us anywhere to begin with, and, 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 and perhaps it got in the way. Trusting in our own goodness kept us from God's grace. So what's the incentive now to be good that we've been saved? Here was the conclusion. The false teacher said, listen, your view of grace, Paul, this free grace, it actually promotes sin. It gives a license to these so-called Christians to go out and abuse their freedom and live however they want. Now, I don't know if that's something you've ever heard or perhaps you've even dealt with it in your own heart. But it's a very real concern. Some people, it's a legitimate concern, not antagonistic. If we see Jesus, in a sense, as our substitute teacher who has come in and removed the authority of the law, doesn't that mean we're free to just sin all we want? And he has to forgive us. He died on the cross. If you've ever heard that or, or even wrestled with that yourself, we have to know how to respond. Even if it's in, only in my own heart, I, know, I have to know how to respond to such a sense of, of, of freedom that equals a license to sin. Well, here in Galatians 5, Paul takes it head on. Romans 6, he does it again also, just for your own edification if you want to read that later. But here in Galatians 5, Paul is going to give us three rebuttals to that accusation. And it's not just Paul speaking to his detractors. He's actually talking to the church here, meaning for us to take these to our own hearts. This is not an argument we make with others necessarily, but it's something that we need to know because it's going to affect how we see God's grace and how we live accordingly. So if anybody assumes that free grace promotes sinful license, Paul's going to show us three reasons that's not true. One, Paul's going to show us that we've misunderstood the nature of our freedom. We've misunderstood the true heart of the law, and we've misunderstood the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Right? The nature of our freedom, the heart of the law, and the ministry of the Spirit. Okay? So first things first, the nature of Christian freedom. Look with me at Galatians 5, verse 13. Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, so much, as I mentioned, so much of the letter to the Galatians centers on this point right here, that if you look to the law as your means of salvation, then you are under bondage to the law. You're enslaved to it. Because the law of God represents a righteousness that sinners cannot achieve. It's a law we can't keep. And so because Jesus has fulfilled righteousness for us, we don't have to rely on the law. We rely on Him by faith in Him. We are free from our bondage under the law. That's the message. And y'all, this is where the nature of freedom comes into focus. If we understand what we were and what we now are, then we'll never make the mistake. If we say, listen, Christian freedom is a license to do whatever we want. 
Paul would say, by no means. In Romans 6, he says, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. Christian freedom is not a ticket to self-indulgence. Paul explicitly says it. Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. And y'all, I realize this sounds very elementary, but I just want to say it. To be a Christian is to be free from sin, not free to sin. Isn't that so simple? But we need to be reminded of this. To be a Christian is not to be free to sin, it's to be free from it. And the application, I think, right here is very clear. In your freedom, Paul says, serve one another through love. See, to those who assume that freedom equals self-indulgence, the gospel of Jesus redefines the term for us. We don't understand what freedom really means. Christian freedom, y'all, is meant to take on the character of the one who set us free. Christian freedom is meant to take on the character of the one who set us free. That, we, that, that Christian freedom, we understand, is something that looks and thinks and acts like Jesus looks and thinks and acts. Through love, we serve one another. That's the outcome of real freedom. And y'all, that word serve in the original Greek root word is the word slave. And this is a willing slavery, a, an intentionally voluntary, I'm coming up under something in honor of who I am now in Christ. Paul uses that word on purpose. That if Christ has set us free to live like him, what did Christ do? If we turn to Philippians 2, Christ emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant, a willing slave to serve us. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He laid down his life in love for us. Why would Jesus set us free to be less like him? No, we're free to be more like him. So, y'all, Christian freedom never ever asks, what can I get away with here? Where's the line that I can get as close to the line as possible without going over? Y'all, if we're asking that, we're asking the wrong question. We've misunderstood what Christ has done. True freedom says, how can I give myself away? How can I express the grace that I've been given in loving service to others? That's what Jesus has set us free for, not sinful self-indulgence, but loving self-sacrifice. And so this is Paul's first appeal. To understand what freedom is, is to understand who Christ is and what he set us free for. Don't misunderstand the nature of what it means to be free. Now the second thing Paul wants to point to that we might misunderstand is the heart of the law. See verse 14? For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Um, verse 15 especially, Paul is a very strong implication here that there's some disunity within these Galatian churches. There's infighting going on. There's biting and devouring, Okay. More, li more than likely, we can't know for sure, but probably the infighting was, was centered on this very issue that they're facing, this issue of grace and law. It's, it's probable that the Galatian Christians who were being swayed in the direction of the false teachers, going back up under the law, 
were uh, having some, you know, having a kerfuffle here with the, uh, the grace Christians who wanted to depend only on Jesus, and it was bringing division. It was sowing seeds of division in the church. And so Paul, of course, is refuting that false message in this letter, but his concern is also for the, the unity and the love of the church. And so he says to them, if you bite and devour one another, eventually you'll be consumed. If you act like wild animals, you're going to tear each other apart. The church will cease to be. That's the outcome if you don't live in loving unity. And y'all, that, that helps us again. If we go back to what Paul said about freedom, what does true freedom do? It serves one another in love. Freedom leads, leads to loving unity, not splintered off individualism. Right? Now, Paul says something profound there in verse 14 also. Look at verse 14 again. He says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in one command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is summed up in one. And right there, Paul is quoting from Leviticus 19, but really he's piggybacking on what Jesus said about Leviticus 19. The exact point Jesus made uh, in Matthew 22, you don't need to turn there, but Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, and Jesus' response is such a famous text. Jesus said, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second command is like it. Meaning it's connected in. You can't have one without the other. The second command, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Meaning, your Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, the whole thing hangs on, depends on, love for God and love for neighbor. And so if we dig on this, y'all, take the, you know, it's helpful maybe to take the Ten Commandments as, a, as a, a tighter summary of the whole law, the moral law of God in Exodus 20 that controls our heart, our devotion, and our activities, right? The whole law, which if, you know, if we want to get down in particulars, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, covet, murder, things like that. God did not give us that law merely to control our outward behavior, simply to create nice, cordial people who get along in public. No, that law has a heart behind it. Those commands have a heart, and the heart is love. Paul says, Jesus says, God says, way back when. You see, if, y'all, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to lie to them or covet what they have or steal from them because love is the governing principle You don't need to be told that it's wrong in order to conform your outward behavior because your heart for them is love. You're going to treat them as one who loves them. And so these these false teachers who are accusing Paul of licentiousness, lawlessness, you're you're just using grace as a way to live however you want. Paul says, no, you've misunderstood the heart of the law in the first place. The heart of the law was never external behavior for its own sake. It was loving obedience from the heart. That's what God always intended. And that's something that only God can produce. What God demands from us in the law, God must produce in us. And y'all, that's the essential point, point three. Don't misunderstand freedom. Don't misunderstand the heart of the law. But all of that ultimately is kind of encapsulated here in the third point. Don't misunderstand 
the work and power of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now this, this can be maybe a little atypical. Let's take this in reverse here. Verse 18, that last verse we just read. Paul is setting up our two competing categories, two ways of life here. He says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And again, so much of that right there is, is the main point of Galatians altogether. Y'all, to be under the law, remember, it means that we, that we try to keep the law in order to gain a righteous standing before God. If you keep the commandments, God will account you as righteous and let you into heaven. This was the false teachers. This is what they were trying to compel the Galatian Christians to come under, come back under the law. But Paul's point throughout the whole letter is, it's impossible to gain a right standing with God through your own works. He says it in Galatians 2, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. It's an impossibility. There are no exceptions. And y'all, the reason for that is because it's not that the law of God is deficient somehow. The law of God is perfect and righteous. The problem is that we're deficient. And that's the message that Paul gives in Romans 8. At the beginning of Romans 8, he says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the sinful flesh, the law can't save you because you can't keep it. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with me. And so here's the predicament. If the law cannot save those who cannot keep it, what hope do we have? And here's the answer. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. And therefore, by faith, we are no longer slaves under the law. We are now sons of God. And Galatians 4 says, if you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his son into our hearts. So we've got a new category, right? We are now in the spirit, or Romans 8 says, according to the spirit, newly defined, and no longer according to the flesh, no longer under the law. We're led by the spirit who indwells us and no longer in bondage to what we were. And so Paul's point here in this scripture is, not only has the Spirit given us that new position, no longer slaves, but now sons, the Spirit also transforms how we actually live, how we walk. It's not a position merely, it is a new life entirely. That's why verse 16 says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify or carry out the desire of the flesh. And so when, when Paul says, walk by the Spirit, that simply means, let your life and your conduct be controlled, be guided by the Spirit of God. It means that the Spirit holds sway in our thinking and deciding and speaking and acting. 
the Spirit is in charge. And y'all, it also means that the Spirit empowers us to live righteously. Sometimes when I see the Spirit in the Bible, I honestly get a little nervous or a little confused because it seems too ethereal for real life. What is the Spirit? What, is, what does He even do? And the fact that He dwells in me, am I, how, am I, how am I supposed to, to, do I activate Him? Do I, I mean, how, how do we think about this? It's a challenge. It really is. Because we, we tow this line between, I mean, some of us, me, I get nervous about the Spirit because I don't want to be weird about it. And there are other of us, other of us you know, we're, we're all about the Spirit, and, and, and under the leadership of the Spirit, man, I don't even need to open this book because I have the Spirit. And of course, both are wrong. Both fall too far to the right or to the left. It's hard sometimes for us to, to understand the work of the Spirit. But I just, just taking this text right here, what Paul is saying is, we not only possess the Spirit, but we walk by the Spirit, and therefore we have the power to overcome the desire of the flesh. Now, y'all, flesh right here is not speaking of our physical body. This, this word flesh is a moral term. It speaks to the inner desires and impulses we, we have to sin. And y'all, I, I think it's important for us to recognize that as a, as a Christian, if you have trusted Christ... You are no longer uh, defined by the flesh. We're no longer slaves to sin, right? But the flesh still remains. It's still kicking. And I don't need to spend time, you know, trying to convince us of that. I'm sure you know this from your own personal life and experience. Day by day, the flesh is still there. See, when God saves us, he doesn't remove all impulse and temptation and potential for sin. But he does grant us an indwelling power to overcome sin by the Spirit. And see, here's how. You see verse 17? For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, that's, I don't think that's a verse that requires us a whole lot of preaching, I think it's fairly common sense. Of course, my sinful flesh opposes God. And God opposes the sin nature, right? That, that they, they're working against each other. But there's, there's a tie-in here, I think, to the rest of the Scripture that's at least for me, is very helpful. Y'all, we've talked a lot about the law. Exodus 20 is a, is a great example of the law, right? The Ten Commandments. The law is also against our flesh. It's not like the law somehow condones sin. No, we wouldn't even know what sin was, for the most part, if it weren't for the law. Paul tells us that. The law is against the flesh. The law defines what sin is and why it's wrong. And the law also prescribes the penalties for committing sin. But here's the critical question that Paul's getting to. Can a law imposed from the outside change your heart on the inside. We all have to reckon with that. We all have to reckon with our assumptions on this. Can a law imposed from the outside change us from the inside? The scripture says no. And that's why we need a new category. The law can address our sin in a great many ways, but one thing the law was never meant to do 
is transform sinners. The law can tell you what is wrong, but it cannot make you love what is right. The law can tell you what's wrong, but it can't make you love what is right. Only God can do that. Only God can transform the heart. And y'all, this is what God has promised to do from way back. I'm going to quote to you from Ezekiel 36 here. This is a promise that God makes, a new covenant promise. Listen to what the Lord says. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Flesh in this case meaning warm and soft toward God, not cold and dead. And then God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You know, we, as believers in Jesus, we are living in the fulfillment of this promise. This is here and now. It has come to us in Christ. And what is the promise? God says, I will cleanse you from sin. I will forgive all your sins. Yes. But not only that. I will give you a new heart. And I will give my spirit, my very spirit, to make it his home in you, to dwell in you. So that, right, with the outcome that, we would walk in God's statutes. We would live in obedience and pursue righteousness. So y'all, the spirit is a positional grace. We saw this a few weeks ago. The spirit affirms to us that we are sons of God. If you ever have reason to doubt God's love, His nearness, His promise, the Spirit will affirm it within you. Positional. right? But not only that. The Spirit brings transformation. The Spirit enlivens us now, enlightens our eyes, and creates a new heart within us so that we will walk after God's Word. Not for external sake, but truly, lovingly, from the heart. Y'all, if you trust in Jesus, then this is true of you, right where you sit. You've received the indwelling Spirit. This is the very person of God, present with you and working in you. And that means you right now, you are enabled to obey Him from the heart. You can do it. And you're empowered to obey Him over and against all your lesser sinful desires. I know we all wish they'd just go away. But that's not how God designed it. He, he, does, he saved us and brought us into a battle. And it's a daily battle that we all know. But by the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desire of the flesh. That command is a promise. Do this, walk by the Spirit, and you won't do that. <laughs> you will experience victory. You will experience the kind of power that is required, a power that we don't possess of ourselves. We never could. But by the Spirit now, we're no longer slaves to sin. Now, we're going to talk next week, particulars here, about the flesh and what it produces and the Spirit and what it produces, one of the great scriptures in all the Bible. But y'all, for today, just for today, we, we rehash this very important question, not just for a detractor outside of us, but for my heart inside of me. 
If I believe that Jesus Christ saves me by grace as a free gift, does that give me license to live however I want? And he'll forgive me. Does that give me license to abuse the freedom that he died to pay for? Do we have any real incentive now to live a holy life? And the answer is a resounding yes. We have all incentive to live a holy life. Because, y'all, God didn't just forgive you and leave you as you were in the flesh. God has transformed you and made you new. And we have been raised up now to walk in newness of life, Romans 6 tells us. So if you are a new creation, the old has gone, the new has come, then let's just let's have a little practical application here as we close. I'm willing to bet, I'm not going to poll the audience here, okay? But I'm willing to bet most of us don't really feel like we're walking by the Spirit. At least not as we should. At least not as we ought to. Maybe a little here and there. But I know you struggle with this, and I do too. So what do we do about it? And I just want to encourage us. I know this is going to sound very, maybe too simple. I want to encourage us today to begin in prayer. Not with a formula or a game plan just yet, but to pray. And y'all, to my shame, I don't pray as I should, and I don't pray for this as I should. I either assume it's going to happen, or I discount it altogether. I don't simply think to ask God to do what he says he'll do. And so I want to encourage me to start, and y'all with me here, okay? Let's take each day this week. We'll start today. I'll start here in a minute. I'll pray, okay, and ask you to join me. But every day this week, could we just sincerely ask the Lord for the strength and the help, the grace to walk by His Spirit? Even if we don't fully understand what all that means and what it all entails. We don't have to fully understand it quite yet. That's okay. We can pray for it and trust that God would answer that prayer. We can ask God to do in our hearts, in our lives, what the Scripture simply says He delights to do. Pray that the Spirit would oppose and conquer the desire of your flesh. Pray that by the power of the Spirit, you will walk in loving obedience to God. Not externally for everybody else to see, but from the heart. Pray for a heart that loves and serves others rather than living for yourself. Y'all, sometimes I feel like prayer is... is um, I don't pray because I don't feel like prayer really gets things done. If something needs to get done, I'll just do it. And I say that to my shame. Because if I could have done it to begin with, Jesus would never need to come to the cross. If I could overcome the flesh in my own power, I wouldn't need the indwelling of the Spirit. And you wouldn't either. And so, shame on me for thinking that simple, heartfelt prayers like these don't really move the needle. So this is for me, maybe for you too, I hope for you too. Let's pray that God would do in us and through us what he says he'll do. What he has done in the sending of his Son and the indwelling power of his Spirit. Y'all, the, the blessedness of this is all of it comes to us as a free gift, but God will not walk by the Spirit for you, and therefore it's a command. 
Having the Spirit, now walk by the Spirit. Putting off the old self, now put on the new. If we are a people who have received His grace, then we now have the glorious privilege to walk in it. Let's pray that we would. Father, I I ask your forgiveness this morning for the many, many many times that, uh, that I have neglected simple, trusting prayer, praying in the Spirit, as your Scripture says. And Lord, I've got so many, um, so many competing desires. There's, there's so much in my heart, Lord, that opposes the Spirit. And somehow, Lord, I, I've, I've come to believe that uh, I, I'll get that under control. I just need more time. I just need to get serious. I pray, Father, that, uh, that you, for me, for all of us, that you'd give us a, that you enlighten our eyes here. This is not in me to figure out and overcome. Lord, you, you've given us your spirit. The power of your spirit, Lord, the very person of the spirit who leads us into all truth who convicts us of all sin, who points us to the grace of Jesus over and over again, who reminds us that we are sons and no longer slaves. Father, I I pray for us this, this morning. Please open us up to this awesome new reality. And Lord, where we have, where, where this inner battle is raging, the Spirit opposing our flesh. Lord, um, setting, setting fire to our conscience, showing us, Lord, the truth of your word, that we might know what is, what is good and right, that we might have our senses trained to discern both good and evil, that we might live and walk in the grace of Jesus and in his truth. Father, I pray that we would not just fall back on our old ways of thinking and being. That we would not look to ourselves and our own resources. And I certainly pray, Lord, that we would never try to go back up under the law to solve our problem. Thinking we just need to do this ourselves in order for you, God, to accept us. Father, help us to see this today, how all of these things come together. We are accepted as a free gift. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. By faith in him, we are free. And now by the Spirit, we may live, Lord, in your statutes. We may live unto righteousness. Father, thank you that um, 
that you've given us one another also to affirm this, to encourage us together in this. Lord, that we fight our battles not just siloed off alone, but, but together as the church. We encourage one another so that no one would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so, Lord, I pray that we would just take up this mantle today as those who have received the Spirit. Lord, let us also walk by Him. Let us live as those, Lord, who are truly being transformed by a a divine grace, Lord, powerful enough not only to forgive us, but to grant us victory each and every day as we walk. Lord, let it be so. We pray in the awesome name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.